Es spricht der Führer. Als unsere Partei gerade sieben an Hofer sprach sie schon zwei Grundsätze aus. Erstens, sie wollte eine wahrhaftige Weltanschauungspartei sein. Zweitens, sie wollte der kompromisslos die einzige Macht und alleinige Macht in Deutschland. Hello, and welcome once again to the Third Reich History Podcast. My name is Ryan Stackhouse, and we will soon be joined by Chris Osmar for the somewhat delayed discussion of Ralph Blank's Die Kriegsendphase an Rhein und Ruhr 1944-45, or The War End Phase from the Rhine and Ruhr 1944-1945. We had originally intended to bring you the discussion about this chapter from Kriegsendphase 1945 Verbrechen, Katastrophen, Befreiungen im Nationale und Internationale Perspektive, which translates as War End 1945, Crimes, Catastrophes, and Liberations in a National and International Perspective, last week, but were sidetracked by a discussion of radicalization and decivilization between Hoya and Gerhard Paul. Ralph Blank, apart from his work as a historian, of course, is actually one of the editors for the H Social Cult Net mailing list that we use to bring you the news for this podcast. As a historian, he focuses on the First and Second World Wars, where he is a specialist on the bomb war, which you will see come out in today's discussion. His chapter, in Kriegsende 1945, provides an overview and synthesis of the material available on the end of the war in this region of Germany. We hope that you enjoy the discussion. Without further ado, the news. All right, I've, I've got a book that I want to talk about this week. It's recently translated into English. It's Norman Oler's Blitzed Drugs in the Third Reich, which ah. has just been published in, in 2017 in English. And, uh, you know, this is a provocative topic to say the least and the author of this book Norman Oler uh, is himself not a historian but a novelist so you know right there I think we need to be a little bit suspicious about this uh, but Oler did have some guidance from Hans Mommsen uh, so he had a a good mentor mm -hmm. in this piece uh, for sure and as the title suggests, this book tries to investigate the place of drugs in Nazi Germany, and particularly within the Wehrmacht and drug use by Hitler himself. So this, this topic is, is certainly sensationalist. It's, it's the kind of thing that you'd expect to see on the History Channel at one in the morning. It's one but, step. It's one, yeah, uh, the new History <laughs> Channel. It's one step ahead of the uh, the occult mysteries of the Third Reich. Yes, exactly. And and this is also something that I've I've had several students bring up with me as asking. So was Hitler just high the whole time? And that's kind of what Oler's trying to suggest here. Uh, but all the same, it's it's well researched. Um, mm -hmm. He has some good good sources, and it's mostly been 
positively received. Uh, the the structure of the book is is that he he starts by looking into the development of the German pharmaceutical industry um, in the 19th century. Um, Germany was one of the world leaders in developing new drugs as medicines. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then he looks into the uses of drugs more recreationally, uh, particularly opiates during the interwar period. And and talks about how Nazi ideology tried to present this as a degenerative or mm-hmm. degenerate habit to link it with Jewish influence. Uh, but Oler demonstrates that the Third Reich very much embraced drugs, that there was one substance in particular, pervitine, which is a synthetic methamphetamine, that mm-hmm. was widely used in Germany in the 1930s. In fact, it was available over the counter until November of, of 1939, when the prescription was required for the first time. And and Oler suggests that the Wehrmacht was hopped up on this stuff as they were invading Poland and France, and they're using it to uh, combat fatigue during the invasion. Uh, and you know, this is I suppose That's documented. Yeah, I'm. It's it's maybe a little bit controversial in that it's it presents it puts us in a spot where we can look at Nazi Germany, Nazism as something that is other and different, dismiss it uh, as, you know, these are madmen that are hopped up on, on goofballs and that we don't need to explain them in any other way if that, that is enough. Uh, but all the sudden, it's, there's something to it. It's true. I think we should ask how, how much that should affect our understanding of what happened. But as we saw when we were talking about the use of alcohol, by Einsatzgruppen executioners in the Soviet Union, there is some impact of substance use, and this could give us kind of an avenue for understanding how some non-ideological factors contributed to the behavior of people in extreme circumstances. Hmm. Uh, what I, I think is more controversial about Mueller's work is his discussion of Hitler's drug use. He suggests that all the way back to 1936, uh, Hitler had been influenced by a, a cocktail of, of different drugs, some very, let's say, alternative uh, medicine type things like injecting pig's heart and pig's liver. Uh, and that Hitler's doctor, uh, Theodor Morrell, had been you know, injecting the stuff into him for almost a decade, right up to, to the end of the war. And he, he spots some turning points in this drug habit that, that he's uh, presenting with Hitler. Uh, 1943, as things turn around in, in the East and the Germans start getting pushed back, uh, he says that Hitler started taking a, a synthetic opiate, Eucadol. Um, and also says that after the, the 20th of July, 1944, failed assassination attempt, that Hitler damages eardrums and they started taking cocaine after that. Uh, and even go so far as to suggest that as supplies of Eucadol started to run out in the late winter, uh, early spring of 45, that Hitler was going into withdrawal. And, okay, I think that it's very dangerous to take this idea too far and to try to understand Hitler as just a drug addict, as a crazy person, mm-hmm. and dismiss him as such. I wouldn't say it's taboo to talk about, but just because it is so sensationalist, I think it's easy to dismiss it as entirely unimportant. 
Uh, but it's perhaps something that we should consider uh, as a factor in his behavior. I think what it's trying to do is to take something that is pretty well established in sort of high stress positions across the board, whether it's in politics or in particularly finance, this is so well, so well established that <laughs> they're like the idea that if somebody uses substances, then they're, we can put them in one category as opposed to another is, I think, a rather puritanical view of what an, an unrealistic view of what many political actors, what their lives are. I mean, Johnny McDonald, the first prime minister of Canada responsible for confederation, quite famously had to be propped up at many of his speeches because he would sway because he was a functional alcoholic. Uh, Churchill also documented issues in that respect with depression. Uh, this is not something there are, there are leaders who are teetotalers and then there are ones who oftentimes sort of skirt on the edge of substance abuse because of the, the stress <laughs> inherent to their position, particularly at times like this. So I, I think alcohol and alcoholism tends to be more normalized in, in now in a way that other substances have since fallen out of use, whereas cocaine and opiates at the end of the 19th century were very broadly used and abused and more or less a, a sort of free access. I think it's interesting to look at this particular aspect because it's not something that you encounter normally. And it is something that shows the broader use of pharmaceuticals in one particular regime, but to sort of give it a causative effect. Again, not having read it at all, right, is, is maybe to give it too much clout. <laughs> well, I, I think you, you make a great point there about the, the culture around different substances uh, having been different in the past, that today generally we see alcohol as a norm, uh, whereas these harder drugs are very much on the outside, whereas Hitler, for example, very openly presented himself as a teetotaler uh, mm -hmm. it, in a time when these harder drugs were more normative uh, as opposed to alcohol or, or were considered part of routine medical procedures. Like don't forget sure. that heroin was developed, I think by AG Bayer, one of the pharmaceutical giants of the mm. Rhineland as, yes. as a treatment yes. for cocaine addiction. Right. Like I, in part, right. Like that was, I don't know if that was its original intent or just one of its off brand or off label usages as they like to say these days. But uh, yeah, like, I mean, this was a period when, there was a lot of new medical experimentation being done a lot of uh, with synthetic synthetically derived substances that still had not quite been established yet. Like, I mean, mother's little helper for depression was a methamphetamine in the 1950s even. And that's post-war that you had a lot of suburban housewives more or less hopped up. Right. So, uh, -huh. uh yeah, and, sure. and, and I mean, and amphetamine even... use, amphetamine use in militaries is standard to this day in, in, you know, so I don't know. I, I guess that's why it's kind of, it's interesting, but it's a novelty, but like you say, it's quite sensationalist to kind of then yeah. suggest that this has a, a causative, uh, relationship to any of the decision-making process. Exactly. Exactly. But, uh, all the same, uh, something that's, worth keeping in mind really sure 
I don't know. I don't know, man. But I anything do enjoy my favorite story. Is anything still that's the one consciousness I'm, altering, yeah. it's going to have some kind of impact. Not not necessarily direct causation, but we should consider it as as part of the whole constellation of forces. I I don't think that's unreasonable as long as we don't give it too much weight. I think you're you're starting to cross into the line where you're you're falling into the traps of psychohistory there, right? Like you're trying to uh-huh. comment at a distance on the individual psychological processes of somebody uh, across you know, through the sands of time type thing. But, I, you know. Yeah, no, that's fair. That's fair. Uh, it, it's, it's nevertheless interesting. I don't know if I've mentioned this story on, on the podcast before, but my favorite one has to be the one about Speer going to talk to Goering at Karen Hall. Do you know this one? No, tell me. So Speer is, it's later in the war and he's going to talk to Goering about something. And this is after Goering has fallen back into his older habits. Like he, he developed a, an opium addiction I I think because of a wound that he received, I'm not sure the full, uh, backtrack on that. I'm not sure why, but he developed an opiate addiction at some point, morphine specifically. Right. And uh, anyway, Speer, who's in charge of armaments, goes to talk to Goering, and Goering meets him at the top of the staircase at Karen Hall, looking down at him, wearing a crushed velvet smoking jacket, and playing pocket pool with uncut gemstones, just like. Taking a, taking a handful of gemstones out of his pocket and letting them run through his fingers. And uh, Speer says that his eyes are just like saucers. Like he's out of his mind on morphine while he's having this huh. conversation with him. This is in this is also in Speer's memoirs, which are self-exculpatory in many ways mm-hmm. and sure. intended to kind of present him in the best light. But I would re- that this is one of those stories that's like so good you wish it was true, you know? Like, <laughs> well. I- I, when you're reading Speer's memoirs, though, um, if you think about his motivation, there's places where he likely doesn't have as much of a reason to make things up. And you can take some of those things still with a grain of salt, but mm-hmm. not as uh, pointing at truth. Mm-hmm. Well, that's fun. Um <laughs> The uh, mine is mine is not nearly as interesting by comparison. I I was looking at a book review. Uh, Miller Kip or Miller Kip is reviewing Hulz Hager's The Adolf Hitler Schools. So this is something that I've always thought was an interesting sidebar in in the history of Nazism that doesn't get very much attention. And I had no luck finding books in English back when I was an undergraduate student because I thought it was interesting at the time I was writing a paper about uh, Nazi youth. Anyway, uh, they're, they're, the Nazis established these whole this whole sort of parallel education system, like elite schools that were supposed to train the next generation of the Nazi elite. So uh, you would, from my understanding, the Adolf Hitler schools were sort of seen as the, the socially leveling ones where you could get people from all classes. There was the National Socialist Ordensbergen or Order Castles, which consciously in the name draws upon this idea of the old like orders of medieval knights, right? And then there were the SS Junker schools where they were trying to train the next generation of SS elite. So essentially there there are these three sets of schools. The Adolf Hitler schools provisionally fell under the Ordensburg, the the order castles that were established. And there's actually a really great movie about uh, from the perspective of a student who goes into one of these called Napola. Or, um, 
which I believe in English is Before the Fall. Anyway, it's got Tom Schiller, who is a great actor in everything that he appears in about the Third Reich. He was also in Generation War. But uh, I, I digress extensively. This book by Hulsheger is, uh, is trying to provide an overview of the what literature exists and has emerged since sort of the 1960s on the topic of elite schools in the Third Reich and specifically the Adolf Hitler schools. And uh, it's it's interesting because as the reviewer here points out, Miller Kipp, most of the most of the history that has come out, like a lot of the history about the Third Reich in the 1960s started as an institutional history, just trying to reconstruct the basic outlines of what what existed and who was in charge of it and everything like that. And really wasn't until later on in the 1970s that you started to get the beginnings of a sort of lived experience, critical history of what it was like to go through that. And there's this one book that came out in 1973 that she talks about by a former student. And then there's not much about that until you reach the 90s, the late 90s, when you get a whole bunch of personal memoirs and recollections and material that is essentially just biography or autobiography of what it was like to live through these institutions. So this book, the Adolf Hitler Schools, comes in and sort of tries to synthesize this into an overview. The reviewer here was a bit critical. She said that there was a lot of good work that was done on the day-to-day -day life of a student and, and reconstructing life in these institutions, uh, but that there wasn't much criticism of the actual pedagogical material that is examined. So you, you get to look at what the Nazis were saying that they were doing in their own words and what their goals were, but there isn't a lot of material that goes into what the actual lived experience for a student at that time was, right? You don't get the same type of uh, that first-person experience of like, okay, well, the school is set up with the intent to indoctrinate people and discuss, and that is discussed in its own right, but then it never comes back around to sort of, well, did it work or did it not? What did you think when you uh -huh. were a student there, right? So... Uh, and and she's critical in that respect because some of the chapters do make the the claim that they're going to discuss mentalities and indoctrination, but don't actually get to the penultimate question, which is how how successful were these in indoctrinating the next generation of the Nazi elite? But if you do want to well, know that, the day to day life of the student, that's a hard question to answer. That's it's a very hard question to answer because you have to be able to see into their minds to know whether they've accepted what they've been taught right well you yes and with all the com but with all the comments about the difficulties of working with with uh sort of uh, oral history here aside mm -hmm. this book did have the advantage of being able to work with the interviews of actual students who were who went to those schools because that's the generation that's still alive at this point right their day-to-day -day and subjects and uh, what type of material they were taught in class, that's all discussed. But what they thought about that material is never discussed. So that that was her point. It nevertheless sounds like it would be an interesting book because there isn't, at least in English, and maybe this is different in German, not a lot of material on this subject. Uh, the reviewer herself has written an article in a collection about the creation of elite uh, sort of 
social constructs in this case obviously the elite nazis but uh it, it the the title of the article is amazing it's called class school always enough to eat and little mathematics so and that was published in 2006 in an edited collection called elite bildung bildungs elite so elite the education of the elite and elite education uh yeah anyway it sounded like something interesting on a topic i've always wanted to know more about Huh. Great. Well, uh, now that we've had our appetizer, should we move on to the main course here? Indeed. We are finally getting around to Ralph Blank, who was promised last time, but delayed uh, so that we could have our discussion about Paul and uh, radicalization. Yes. This is Ralph Blank's chapter from Kriegesende 1945. Uh, the chapter is Die Kriegesendphase on Rhein und Ruhr, of the end phase of the war on the Rhine and Ruhr. And, uh, you know, as a, a main course here, it's a pretty small portion. Uh, there, it, It's a good work of synthesis, but I didn't take away a whole lot that was new from it. Mm-hmm. As we were talking about before the show, uh, this would be this would be a good place for somebody who speaks German to get into the discussion of what was going on across the board in the West at the end of the war. But if you've already read an article like Ralph Blank, or you already have a, a, a grasp of what the course of events were and what who the major players were and generally what was happening, there won't be as much here for you to 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 really dig into. Which is um, important, right? Like, if, if you didn't have that, there would never be those articles you go back to to be like, oh, yeah, right. Where, what else do I need to read? Where, where do I get my reading list for this subject? <laughs> that's, that's a great point. He's doing a real service here. So uh, what, what he, I think he does well is that he shows kind of the totality of the chaos in the rhine ruhr region and kind of starts to link these different themes together. So I've, I've identified a handful of themes here. I think that the, the bit that he's most concerned with, or that he writes the most on, is the impact of the air war Yes, in, in the Rhine Ruhr in particular. Uh, but he also gets into some other very interesting questions uh, about, for example, this Nero order, the, the order uh, given by Hitler to destroy everything that could be of use to the Allies, to practice scorched earth. Uh, he talks about the crimes of the end phase. He talks about the Allied approach to the rural pocket, gets into the propaganda war there, and uh, the post-war effects of the, all of these other themes on the rhine rural region. So did you, did you pull out any other big picture themes from the chapter? Well, I think that there's there's two core ideas that he is dealing with that we should probably define and and lay out and discuss because they're very important for the larger history of Germany and history of the Second World War specifically and how the Gestapo behaves in the end phase. But they're they're also just they I think he never he discusses the Nero order. At, at greater length than he does the stab in the back myth, but both of these things are worth knowing. You need to know what they are. So uh, maybe we could define those two things first. How how would how would you describe the stab in the back? 
Uh, so the stab in the back uh, is going to point back to the end of the First World War. So this is the, the myth that the German military was betrayed while still occupying enemy territory, uh, was betrayed on the home front by a conspiracy of Jews and socialists and whatnot. Uh, and in the context of the Second World War, there is outright terror within the Nazi party that it's going to happen again, that there will be another stab in the back. Yeah, Hitler bends over backwards to make sure that the civilian population, regardless of what the the public propaganda was in the interwar era, he's very careful, Hitler is very careful during the Second World War, the civilian population not be touched by the privations of war, that they are not exposed to that their rations are not reduced, that they don't starve in the hundreds of thousands like they did in the winter of 1917, that the types of things that happened, uh, like open discussion in public of what the statements of foreign leaders were, uh, you know, they, they established these laws controlling public discussion of information and that you're not allowed to listen to foreign radio, things like that. They take every step to prevent or to cut off those things that they saw as contributing to the collapse of morale on the home front because the idea I, the core of the idea is that the german army was never defeated that it was stabbed in the back and there's one of the the theories about the origin of the term or one of the stories about the origin of the term is that uh, ludendorff who was the head of the general staff or one of the co-heads of the general staff I'm not sure by 1918 whether he was supreme commander or whether he was still co-commander with Bismarck. Either way, he after the war, he is visiting at the British military mission in Berlin and dining with Sir Neil Malcolm, and, who asks him, so why did Germany lose the war? And Ludendorff begins to list off, you know, oh, well, you know, he, and he, he lists off his excuses and, and rests on this failure by the home front to support the fighting front. And Sir Malcolm says, do you mean, General, to say that you were stabbed in the back? And Ludendorff's eyes light up and he sort of seizes on this and he says, yes, that's it. We were stabbed in the back. So uh, it's definitely an idea that he, as leader of the armed forces and uh, leader of the general staff at the end of the Second World War, was responsible for propagating as, you know, because he was the guy who was in charge of having lost the First World War. So uh, it, it, in many ways, has this very strong self-exculpatory undertone and, and does not take into account that Germany had been totally blockaded at sea by the British Navy for four years at that point and that people were starving in the streets and eating bark and going shoeless because you know there was there were major issues with nutrition and uh you know just making sure people weren't starving to death the the average caloric intake for an adult for an adult male in 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 winter of 1917 was 1500 calories a day so it's just unbelievable this that is starvation levels right so yeah and you know uh you point out that you know, through this really great story i've got to say it has kind of the feel of something that is apocryphal, but all the same, pointing at Ludendorff's mentality that he has to excuse himself. But of course, all the people who had been involved in the war, had been soldiers or whatnot, could mm -hmm. also latch onto this idea. Because well, it's not just an excuse front. for leadership, it's an excuse for everyone who's participated, for why, why they did not succeed, that it wasn't their fault. Yes, 
Yes, it was the November criminals who signed the Armistice Treaty, that being the term of abuse used by the right wing in Germany to discuss the the first democratic social democratic government after after the war who were responsible for signing the peace treaty. The the general command had more or less dictatorial control over the country by 1918 and basically told parliament they just told them, "Yeah, by the way, we're going to lose this." And it it was a total shock to Parliament that uh, they had been informed that things are going well and yeah things are hard right now but things are good and and then all of a sudden the general staff came in and said yeah uh, you need to start negotiating peace with the West and then they left the the first democratically elected Parliament with holding the bag for uh, for being responsible for ending the war so it's <laughs> it's an interesting chapter in history but this did not stop it from entering popular consciousness as the reason why Germany lost the First World War, that Germany had been, you know, betrayed by internal enemies. And it, it, it explains a lot about the Nazis' policies. So, well, I guess now that we've done all this exposition on the stab in the back, we should apply it uh, to what Blank is saying here. So what is Blank saying about the stab in the back? Well, I mean, he's, he's talking about the outright destruction of Western Germany, particularly under the bombs and, and then through invasion, uh, and that this total destruction precludes the notion that another stab in the back has taken place. Yeah, I thought that was a really interesting point. I, I, I wasn't quite sure where he was drawing that, whether that was an observation that he was making, or he was saying that the Allies said that this was one of their goals. Or that this was something that came out after the war as one of the justifications. I think he was implying that it was a goal, but he doesn't come out and say it. And I don't think that he he made a case uh, for this being an, an allied motivation. But it's plausible, I think. He does talk about allied propaganda uh, during the encirclement of the Ruhr, which was all about you know, surrender or be destroyed. Uh, so presenting it as an all or nothing proposal. Well, it certainly he does come to the point that the, did I read this on Wikipedia today or, or on this, that the, no, I read this on Wikipedia. Um, never mind. But, <laughs> <laughs> well, now I'm curious. <laughs> well, uh, the arbiter of truth wikipedia says that the in part the unconditional surrender principle was to prevent a second stab in the back myth from emerging so blank may be linking on to this idea that there was thinking in the allied command that we need to prevent a second stab in the back narrative from emerging. But I have to say, having read a lot of military history, I've never come across this as something conscious in the planners' minds that what at least is presented to me by other historians of the subject is that, as Blank points out, morale is considered an integral part of everything that contributes to the war, German war effort. So indiscriminate area bombing becomes a, a a part, like he points out, a target on par with oil production facilities. 
Uh-huh. Yeah, but, if, if anything, the, the logic behind that is to actually precipitate a real stab in the back, to yes. break morale so that the home front rises up against an as-of-yet-undefeated military and ends the war. Yes, but that this is part of a planning, a, plan, a planned effect or just a happy consequence that, as he says, the smoking ruins stand as testament to the fact that, no, this time we really did lose and mm-hmm. there, there is no way that you can square that circle. But it, it's an interesting point to make, and it's certainly from a point of view of, uh, from a broader historical narrative point of view. A very good point to take away because it is something that fundamentally separates the way that popular memory of the Second World War in Germany functioned. Because as he says, the air war was just a completely taboo subject up through the 50s and 60s. People just did not talk about, did not want to talk about it, not even appeared in academic history because it was so sensitive. Yeah. Yeah. uh, Blank is also very concerned about the immediate post-war period. And and that's why I think he brings up this this bit about it being clear that Germany had been defeated and points out that, for example, the, the ruins remained partially standing for quite a long time as kind of a, a monument to the defeat of Germany. In East Berlin, right up until unification. Yeah. The cities were not rebuilt quickly. This was something that people lived with for a long time. I suppose we should talk about his larger point about the air war and about its impact on civilians and lived experience and his little sidebar about Jörg Friedrichs, the the fire in there, uh, because it, that's something that we've kind of touched on when we were talking about Rusenik, but we haven't really gone into depth about. Yeah, so he opens by talking about uh, Friedrichs' book, uh, The Fire, mm-hmm. uh, and you know he acknowledges that it is controversial, uh, but he seems to be latching on to Friedrich's willingness to highlight the suffering of the German people, to present them as at least in part victims, and he kind of takes this as the de- his departure point for the whole piece. I couldn't figure out what he was trying to say there exactly, because on the one hand, he seemed to be not uncritical in his commentary of the fact that the right in Germany has used this to portray... Well, no, I do know what he was saying, because later on in the article, he does make a rather pointed effort, especially when talking about tactical bombing and things like this, that the the right uses the attacks on uh, whether it's area bombing or strafing or, as Gunter Grass talks about in Crab Walk, the torpedoing of the, what was it, the Gustav? Gustav? Wilhelm Gustav, yeah. Yeah, the Wilhelm Gustav, to portray Germans who died at the end of the war and as refugees, specifically. That the victims of the Allied air war are essentially refugees. Mm-hmm. And that I think Blank here is taking a different tack by saying, no civilians were caught up in the targeting process they were but were not specifically targeted in the same way as say friedrich suggests which is that they're that civilian because friedrich is very explicit about saying that 
civilian morale is the primary target. It is the uh-huh. only target. And that that essentially after 1942, the Allies abandoned uh, strategic bombing in the sense of an air offensive against industrial capacity. And a lot of this article seems to be oriented around reclaiming the argument that no, a, yes, civilians were targeted, but no, civilians were not the exclusive target. They were uh, civilian morale was a target among a much larger thing that did rise in priority mm. in the final months. Sure. On, often on par incidental. with oil, but not necessarily uh, above all other motivations. Yes. Yeah. And I, I think that was a lot fair. And also, uh, particularly when he gets in the argument of tactical bombing. So in 1944, the American Air Force begins to unleash uh, their their fighter bombers. So this would be like the P-47 Thunderbolt, just single engine fighters that can carry a lot of ammunition and rockets and bombs, but they're still fighters. They're small aircraft. And so that means they can fly low to the ground. They can att- They can attack trains. They can shoot up cars as they're driving along roads. Mm-hmm. They can strafe, which is to say they, they can machine gun columns of troops as they're moving around. And this which is known in uh, by Americans as barnstorming, right? Like you're flying at barn level and just storming around all over the place, right? So the the barnstorming by American fighter bombers particularly is what shuts down the movement of troops and material around areas. However, one of the most common images when you get into the discussion of the the suffering as as Blank is talking about the the tendency to portray uh, the suffering of German civilians is this idea of the American fighter bomber as attacking columns of civilians, evacuating civilians and refugees, uh, essentially out of spite, and or from the perspective of the people on the ground, out of spite. And he makes the point that when you're flying along at 375 miles an hour. This is like 450, 550 kilometers an hour. You don't have much time to confirm whether the few trucks in the sea of people there are part of a military column or a civilian column. You know that it's moving traffic and that there are targets there. And I think that was an interesting point that made me, made me stop and think about a lot of the discussion that goes on around the air work. It's a very politically charged subject, you know. Yeah. Um, uh, but Blake's certainly not an apologist for the tactical bombing. Uh, he, he points out that there was an indifference to whether targets were military or non-military, that they were hitting anything that moved. And he, he points out, for instance, uh, the destruction of a train full of uh, Hitler youth. And he also, and I thought this was interesting because it's something that I'd, I'd never heard before, uh, talked about the Allied intention to create dead zones uh, that they would drop flyers saying that this this is a dead zone and then bomb the crap out of it. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I found it particularly interesting because that's the same language that the Nazis were using in, in the anti-partisan war in the East. So he well, doesn't necessarily pull punches. Uh, he's, I don't he's, think that he's... I don't think... That, I wasn't saying that he was an apologist for it, but uh-huh. he's not taking the argument of... Uh, German victimhood and there there is a tendency in certain portions of the historiography and at least in the public debate around the air war to discuss the air war in terms of 
an intentional crime against humanity in the same and there's a lot of discussion about that that can be had about civilian morale bombing and and was had in the 1970s at least in the english-speaking world or the commonwealth he's not taking this idea that fighter bombers were targeting intentionally targeting civilians laying down i think he's being very objective about what the strategic goals of the air offensive and of tactical bombing as a larger strategy was and being very careful to note that many civilians were caught up in the midst of it but nor were they the direct they were the direct targets in strategic bombing on par with oil producing facilities they were not the direct targets of the tactical bombing they just happened to be in the places where there were choke points right which is a, a really you know that doesn't make much difference when you're the person on the ground but it does make a difference when you're writing the post-war narrative. Sure. Uh, I mean, we. I think we do, though, have to assume that the Allies were well aware that there were plenty of civilians, call them refugees or, or not, who were moving around down there as well. Oh, of um, course. That e- even if they weren't trying to single out civilians, they were in They were not making an effort to, to yeah. make sure that they weren't hit. No, absolutely not. No, there's... Um, there's actually a great series or that you would enjoy or great. I think it's one episode as part of a series about public history debates that was put out by the national film board of Canada. And one of them is all about bomber command, uh, death from above. And it sparked a massive debate in Canada and to, to a, a somewhat lesser extent in Britain as well about the morality of the area bombing campaigns and of bomber command and there's it's a it's a prime example of a politically charged public history debate that is has sort of become taken on a life of its own beyond actual historical events and actual historical objectives and uh it is great teaching material uh-huh. and compelling teaching material because it's all about, it's all about the fire bombings right but uh and, and i think I don't know. I felt like Blank did a really good job striking the difficult middle ground when talking about the strategic air offensive, because it's you are talking about an offensive that, in part, explicitly targeted civilians as or quote unquote civilian morale as as an attempt to undermine the German war machine. Well, he's and he's differentiating these three air campaigns that happened from the fall of forty four through the end of the war. Mm-hmm. There was the, the transportation plan uh, to, to, to destroy the, the rail infrastructure out of the Ruhr with four-engine heavy bombers. Uh, and then the, the second battle of the Ruhr uh, between October of 44 and December of 44. Uh, and that's the one that was targeting morale. This is where you have like uh, Operation Hurricane where you have not just one attack on a city, but two, sometimes three in a day, in order to impress upon the people there the power of the Allied Air Forces and how it was impossible to stop them. And he differentiates that from the interdiction of the Ruhr campaign uh, from February to March of '45, which was all about if the, the fire bombers destroying anything that moves. Mm-hmm. And, and pointing out that they're, well, implicitly implicitly pointing out that there are different objectives in each of these campaigns. Uh, but one of them, the second battle of the Ruhr was, was certainly targeting German morale. 
Yeah, the strategic bombing campaign is definitely all about civilian morale and leveling factories. And civilian morale is moved up and down the list of targets. Um, yeah. I, I, but I don't know. I just... After, compared to Friedrich, he does a really good job. And it's not that Friedrich doesn't do a really good job, but Friedrich is not even-handed. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Blank doesn't refer to... Does not refer attacking Germany from the air. Uh, He doesn't talk about people being gassed in their air raid shelters, like things like that. Um, He doesn't. He doesn't. uh, He doesn't draw a moral equivalency between the Holocaust and the strategic air campaign. That's a big mark and check mark in the in the plus category for me. But yeah, yeah. One other and I guess somewhat unrelated uh, thing that he points out about the the air war that I found interesting was that he, he kind of demonstrates the role of the fog of war that mm-hmm. uh, the, the bombings help to break down communications and the breakdown of communications makes it so that no one really has a full picture of how bad things are. And that individuals like Goebbels and Speer would go to the Ruhr and actually see it for themselves and that they had a better appreciation of what was really happening because they'd been there, so Speer can can go back and say that you know we're going to lose the war if we if we lose this area, particularly mm-hmm. after uh, most of the rest of the sources of coal in Germany had been lost to the Soviets in the east. Yeah, as he says, two of the best informed individuals in in the Reich. Right. Speaking yeah. of which, he does have this one line in there referencing the entire idea that the communication breakdown was part of what created. The, the decentralization or alludes to the fact that the communication breakdown is what contributed to the decentralization of policing and of the creation of new structures. Yeah. Yeah. So that's in his pretty small section about the crimes at the end of the war. And yes. he does specifically pick this out as one of the causes, the, the breakdown of communications. So that was just something to sort of, that's something to put a little flag in the margins about. So. Yeah, but there wasn't much more about policing beyond that. No, I I mean, he doesn't talk about the Gestapo specifically very much. Uh, he, he notes that some new executions are taking place, and he, he calls them cumulative killing actions of the Gestapo. So, you know, he doesn't use the word radicalization there. But I think that's what he's pointing at, suggesting yeah. that the impact of the bombing war, the breakdown of communications and transportation, that these all contributed to expanding the terror. Uh, and then uh, he does outline some specific orders, uh, most of which I think maybe all of which we we have talked about before. They all come from Paul's, uh, these shootings no longer move me inwardly. Uh-huh. Which... We haven't done that one yet, have we? We have not. It's one to, to put that. on the list. Yeah, absolutely. Well, but uh, what he does outline is just the the gradual devolution of authority from the center to the periphery, giving individuals on the ground at gradually lower levels of authority the power to carry out executions on their own. Yeah, um, and he really only talks about Albath's order from Dr. Albath, the inspector of security police, his order from late January. 
and and Colton Brunner's follow-up about yeah. the the devolution of responsibility. Yeah. So this isn't something that's particularly new. What I guess is new is is just placing it alongside some of these other themes, uh, yes. and demonstrating, if only by juxtaposition, that all of these things are connected in one way or another. The well, bombing impacts the the crimes uh, that. Well, he doesn't say this either, but I, I guess it's something we could think about that uh, the devolution of authority impacts whether or not the near order is going to be carried out. So just, mm-hmm. I think that that's something, I'll, but there's not a whole lot here uh, that is new on the end phase crimes. Well, I think the emphasis is valuable because much of the emphasis of this chapter is based on the civilian experience the civilian experience of the air war specifically and how civilians became a occasional primary, often secondary target in the, the larger air war. And he, that is sort of his touchstone that everything comes back to is how, how is this related to the air war? How did this come out of the air war? How did the air war affect this particular part of, of the end phase? And uh-huh. and I, I think that's something important that we, we sort of take for granted and was kind of slipping from view as we were looking at the Gestapo in that, yes, we're talking about breakdowns of communications, but it was, you know, like breakdown of communication. Why is that, right? Well, what's your backdrop? The the constant bombing raids, the fact that you can't move sideways without being shot, having your car shot out from underneath you by a marauding allied fighter bomber right um that that choke points in cities are being bombed and already like hit with artillery on a regular basis that if you are a civilian and you are anywhere near the front that you're you're caught up in you're caught on both sides on the one hand you're you're facing the advance of the allies on the other hand you're you're not to surrender to this overwhelming force because after especially after january as the situation advances into Germany, the terror is ratcheting up. So I think it's valuable to have that foregrounded as really the, the, the air offensive is one of the driving forces of social change in Germany at the end of the war. Mm-hmm. In, in the way that the regime is organizing itself, in the way that it is trying to get around production, in the way that it's trying to get around social control, Social control isn't a problem just because the Allies are over the next hill. It's a problem because the Allies are bombing the country day and night and approaching. And so there, there is a very definite pressure to end the war as soon as possible to stop the air raids. Sure. But at the same time, as he points out, the, the bombing has also produced this fog of war. So nobody necessarily knows quite how bad things are. And, you know, that, that may persuade some people to to hang on or uh, when faced with uh, the prospect of you know putting out the bed sheets uh, and trying to surrender their their little town to the approaching allies uh, or holding out in the hopes that they're not going to face the terror uh, it, could, it could make a little bit more sense why you might continue to toe the line if you just can't know how bad things really are hmm. that's yep that's another way to look at it. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And I guess that makes 
that makes more sense maybe not for an individual who's thinking about whether to put up a white flag uh, as it would matter for somebody like say a Gestapo station chief uh, who might ha- be a little bit more invested uh, in the war to begin with. Well, it would certainly make sense if you were a mayor trying to decide if now, like now, is the time to organize local notables to to drive out the the remaining party members and try and surrender, or whether it's time to you know. And this is not to suggest that all you know there's necessarily a divide between mayors, Nazis, and Nazi mayors, but <laughs> uh, that certain certain groups. Like in one case that Blank discusses, it's uh, a local a pair of uh, of priests who take the initiative and begin to try to organize the surrender. But that absent of that broader information, you might not take risks or you might not try and organize in a way that you would otherwise. And and also that the the terror is there executing people who are taking those steps, right? So yeah. The, the fog of war is definitely contributing to that. And, you know, both the allies and the party apparatus are competing, not competing for morale, not just with terror and with bombs, but also with propaganda that the allies are, are dropping all kinds of leaflets uh, as they advance, uh, telling the people to surrender. You have to give up or be destroyed. Uh, while the party is telling everybody to to hold out, no matter what, to the if last. If you give defender. up, you will be destroyed. Yeah. yeah, right. So they both sides are are moving into this space of incomplete information and trying to fill in the gaps with propaganda. Yeah, and I, I suppose that's really the situation where you have an opportunity to do your most work in that respect, effect most effectiveness. I don't follow you. Uh, in the absence of information. Propaganda is the uh, only information. Sure. Yeah, yeah. So this this is a space where propaganda can be effective because there's nothing else to go on, right? Although yeah, that's something that deserves further attention. I it, think. it could, but I mean, flight after flight after flight of heavy bombers flying over is something to go on. Yes, three thousand five hundred <laughs> aircraft in the air daily over the Rhine uh, by blanks. Uh, sources that is uh-huh. n- that is evidence that you cannot avert your eyes from uh-huh. but you know people are strange creatures and uh you know you can tell yourself maybe it's just here maybe they're all getting shot down when they get wherever they're going you always just need to hold out to a little bit longer. yeah 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 i and I, I keep coming back to to kershaw in this respect in that that's Certainly by the time you reach 1945, February, March 1945, a, a line that the that those most invested in the regime, whether it's politically or through complicity in the case of the Gestapo, are going to be more likely to tell themselves than the comparatively apolitical average citizen who, regardless of what their previous feelings were, now just does not want to be killed in an air raid, right? Mm-hmm. Well, maybe this is be a good place to bring up the whole issue of suicides by Nazi functionaries. So this is something else that the blank talks about. I mean, I suppose if you are willing to kill yourself when all is lost, then 
these you know, mayors and at least one Gauleiter in Rhein-Ruhr, up until the point when they did kill themselves, they must have thought that there was some kind of hope that if that was their plan B, <laughs> then mm-hmm. then uh, up to the point that they actually pulled the trigger or bite the cyanide capsule, they, they must have thought that there was something to hang on to. Yeah, I... I'm. I was curious about what the statistics and distribution on those suicides were, because I know that suicides around Berlin were insane at the end of the war. It's it's in the thousands, if not tens of thousands, and that's very much an Eastern Front. The you know we're going to be in response to the propaganda, but we're going to be enslaved, uh-huh. and the knowledge about the you know the crimes in in against humanity in in Soviet Union. So. I, I was surprised to hear that it was a phenomenon worth mention on the Western Front. Mm-hmm. Um, so the question that it raised for me was whether this was something that also extended to the population in the same way that it did in the Eastern Front, or whether it was something that was restricted to the most implicated of the political establishment. In which case, why did the Gauleiters not kill themselves? Why did they flee? That I thought that that was something that was really interesting. That only one of the five Gauleiters killed himself, Meyer, and he had been at the Vance conference. He was deeply implicated in all of the worst crimes of the Nazi regime. Uh, but the others just tried to get away and go go off and and hide. So what does that tell us? Is is this they were not as afraid of the Americans? And the English and the Canadians. I got to throw the Canadians in there for you. Don't forget <laughs> As, the free French. Yeah, okay. I I needed to, to cut the list off at some point. But yes, at all. At, so were higher level party functionaries not just not as worried about what would happen to them under the Western allies as were their counterparts in the East afraid of the Soviets? Was Was that the difference? I I think that's the one that stands to logic and also stands to as much evidence as we're getting from the the historical record. He makes this side comment about the the sheets greeted the advance of the American soldiers on the western, the northern, and the southern fronts. There is like Himmler issues that order that quite specifically says if a family hangs out white sheets, go in and kill all the males of the family, right? Or kill kill all the men mm-hmm. and boys. So obviously. At the very, very end, there's a reaction to trying to stop that kind of behavior. And I'm not sure. Uh, I, I guess that shows that the yes, yes, long, long winded answer. Yes. Mm-hmm. They're just there. There is a fundamental difference. But I, I'm, I'm so puzzled by the Gao leaders because, you know, Goebbels kills himself. You have the, the sort of the most dedicated end up dying or going down fighting and then a lot of them end up in Nuremberg as well I suppose but what are they what are they expecting I suppose that 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 I yeah. suppose is the bigger question there sure and um if that is the case in the west blank points out at least two cases in which the mayor of a town kills not only themselves but their families now if you're if you're not worried about how the allies are going to treat you does that point to true deep ideological commitment to not seeing a 
a post-war world that's worth living in rather than not seeing a post-war world where you will survive. Hmm. Yeah, you're, you're definitely onto something there. It, it was puzzling to me that lower level officials would be the ones who would kill themselves rather than higher level ones, right? Like there's, there's an element of being, I don't know if it's like lost without leadership, right? Like if the Fuhrer is gone, then what? like the, the, the sort of the classic Goebbels story of he kills his family and his wife because he can't imagine a world without Hitler. And, and I think that there must be an element of that, that without that some of these people without a future with Hitler and with, Nazism, they feel lost, right? Like the same way that people cried at Stalin's funeral, right? That the mm-hmm. after they lost the the Vzhod, or however you pronounce the boss in Russian, they just felt lost. So, but yeah, I mean, it it seems totally at odds with what one would expect. Yeah, well, it, it would be interesting to see some kind of statistical work on uh, suicide in the East versus the West, because it may just be that in constructing the narrative about the East, it is particularly compelling to point out the suicides. It could just be that Blank is is one of the few people that has brought it up in the West uh, because yeah, because it doesn't fit into the story that, that people weren't afraid of the, the Western allies. But you don't get the sense of like mass suicides here. You get the sense no. of very few select political functionaries. Yeah. Yeah, but all the same, uh, it feels yeah. like this is still anecdotal and and that may be something that I don't know where you would find the sources for more quantitative study on something like that. A comparative study of suicides? Yeah. Mm. Well, it sounds like a depressing topic to work on, but, you know, not a whole lot different than a lot of the other topics that are available when talking about Nazi Germany. The Holocaust is so cheery, right? Yeah. A comparative study of suicides and revolution and social groups that are caught in suicide would be actually be quite an interesting broader net to cast because Hmm. you you have that whole idea of like maybe that's and and I, I, I frame it that way because. Maybe that's what you're looking at here with this entire idea. You're you're looking at a fundamental social transformation. You're looking at a fundamental insecurity about the future, but you're looking at a future where, as you say, the options are that are presented to you are ones that no longer are no longer worth living for or living through, <laughs> regardless of whether it's survival or not. So, or you know, or it could just be a special implication implicated knowledge, right? But no. Um... There could be some crossover here also in thinking about resistance to the near, I shouldn't say resistance, <laughs> to the near, the near order. Uh, right. The uh, unwillingness to carry out the near order. So I already gave the, the basic outline of the near order. This is in order to destroy anything that could be of use to the allies to, to practice scorch earth. And Speer uh, quite famously claims to have tried to stop this order from actually being carried out. Uh, this is another one of the things that appears in his memoirs and is somewhat questionable. And you know, Blank identifies this as one of these policies that was developed in the East and then imported back into Germany that uh, the Germans in the occupied Soviet Union had been carrying out scorched earth as they withdrew, uh, and they would discuss doing it again in the West as they withdrew. Mm-hmm. 
yeah, another case of tactics learned abroad being brought back to the home front as the war turned mm-hmm. against Germany. Although, so, you know, Blank also tries to place it within a a larger context of measures for liquidation, evacuation, disabling uh, industry, and outright destruction of in- industry and infrastructure to show it as not an all or nothing proposition, that it was just one aspect of this wider project to make Western Germany more defensible and less useful once it was conquered. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the idea that there was no future for Germany after Hitler, and so just burn it all down, right? Nero fiddles as Rome burns, being the idea behind why it was named the Nero Order, at least popularly among in in historical memory. And I don't know if, that, if that's a term from the time or something that was applied after the war. Neither do I. Um, I can't imagine Hitler referring to it as the Nero Order. I can't imagine anybody <laughs> saying it out loud at the time and not getting in you know at that point you're into the maybe the off with the head stories are going to in fact happen to you you know sure so yeah but uh, you know as you point out that the logic behind it is that you know if if germany loses the war germany is going to be right uh, that the people will be enslaved germany will cease to exist uh, so you don't need to plan for the post-war world uh, but uh, if you see it as part of this spectrum that includes a disabling industry, uh, then then it's more inter- interesting because disabling industry has an entirely different ideology behind it. It's the the idea that these territories are going to be retaken, so you just need to damage them enough that they're not immediately useful and can be repaired. Once Western Germany is retaken, then then you can uh, fix everything up, uh, reconnect the power and go back to work. And that's the tack that Speer says that he was using uh, to you know, present outright destruction of industrial infrastructure as defeatist almost. And uh, that if you expect Germany will win the war, then you need to uh, make sure that industry can be put back online uh, once the miracle turnaround happens. Just waiting for the, one, for the miracle weapons, right? Yeah. As I understand it, I can't remember which ones it were, two or three of the Gauleiter in the Rhine-Ruhr were trying to carry out destruction of industry, but we don't have them killing themselves. So if the, I mean, if the purpose of the Near Order is to destroy Germany because there's not a viable post-war world, then... You know, isn't that the same kind of attitude that would persuade someone to kill themselves? Right. That could be true. Yeah, they, they see a path into the future. And I, I mean, the view has got to be a lot clearer from the top, too. If, you've, if you're someone who has enough status and wherewithal to have climbed the slippery pole, as it were, and reached the levels of a social elite to command a country, right? you got to believe that the connections that you've made at that point are going to see you through in a way that maybe... The, the local level idealist and ideologue will not. Uh-huh. Yeah. Not to suggest that the, the Gauleiters of all people are not the like, committed paladins of Hitler, right? But Sure. But you might imagine that that, that kind of power that you're, you have uh, could buy you something in the post-war world. 
in, as indeed it did in most cases. Right? <laughs> so okay. it's not like they bet on a losing horse in that respect. Yeah. Much to the chagrin of, uh, you know, the moral arc of the universe and all that. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hmm. It's, it's almost disappointing. Yeah. All right. Well, do, do you have any thoughts on uh, what Blank has to say about the, the, the post-war period? Um, no. What do you have to say about Blank's view on the post-war era? Well, all right. Well, we already talked about how he is suggesting that the extent of the destruction precluded the development of a new stab in the back myth. But he's also is showing that industry was able to get back onto its feet again relatively quickly after the end of the war. By um, fall 1945, yeah. Yeah. War yeah. ends and in May. So he really uh, interested in the battery industry, and I thought this was pretty dry. But he shows that these factories started turning out products for civilian use and for use by the Allies almost as soon as the war's. Uh, but they were the vital factories because they're the starter batter fa battery factories. So if you don't have the starter batteries there, then you don't have a machine that turns over with the way that modern engines are constructed. So I, I think that's why he picked them. Yeah, and I, I, if I understood this correctly, they, there were factories underground producing these batteries uh, because they were also used for the, the V2 rockets and the, the rocket facilities were all owned. And I think that's why they had survived mostly intact. Oh, uh, they have the machinery. Yeah. Right. But this this does, it kind of seemed like he's arguing both sides of the the whole bomber war campaign. That He's saying that it, the total destruction makes it clear that Germany is defeated and that there couldn't have been a stab in the back. But all the same, they were able to refit the equipment and, and start turning out batteries right after the end of the war. So that's, that's not complete destruction uh, of industry. Well, his so point was that the end of the war was not the end of industry for many, but rather a new beginning, how? as he puts it. Okay. So how does this tie in with the the whole Nero order business? Um, does this, uh, does this, I don't know that the Nero order was ever followed that much. Well, it wasn't. And I guess blank says that part of that was because they just didn't have the capacity to carry it out. That it was just too hard to do, mm. but I mean, is is this even implicitly suggesting some kind of heroism there? <laughs> that's that's uh, a question that I'm left with there. No, I don't Industry. think so. I think that he was pointing towards some type of continuation of militarism. He says that the tradition of mm -hmm. making U-boat batteries could not be disturbed by two world wars. <laughs> like that, there. I think he's pointing towards a strong continuity in this respect rather than a departure and that okay. i think makes more sense when you're looking at it from the historiographical point of view of a german who is often writing against this idea of the schlussstrich the the final the end line of like mm -hmm. oh and we reach may 1945 and this aberrant chapter in our history is over and everything that happens after that point is different and he shows that quite apart from that this the rhineland remained the the heart of the German military industrial complex. So uh, it, it could be that he's approaching it from a, with a different set of different 
set of cultural baggage, if you suppose. Mm-hmm. All right. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, this, that section did seem like it didn't quite fit with the rest. And I was trying to make the connections, but okay. Continuity narrative. Sure. That makes sense. That's my best guess, but uh-huh. maybe we can get a hold of him and ask. Sure. There's not a there's not a lot of open argument in this, and I think that again no. is sort of what makes this a good starting point for people who are new to the conversation, and also what leaves it us as historians who have read a lot of other sources on this searching for something that we can hang on to and have an opinion about, because most of what he's saying is just events. There's not a lot of interpretation about causation. There's not a lot of argument about the about yeah causation essentially and change just that these these were events and this is what happened and this is when it happened so uh, that that is valuable but i'm yeah i don't think i have much more to say about it so i i think that i think you've hit it there that um the the contribution here is bringing different different themes together and you know identifying the the Rhine River as a distinct region, mm-hmm. the distinct history at, at the end of the world. Uh, that's, that's important too. And um, placing so many of these developments in the context, putting, putting the air war as the background on this canvas mm-hmm. at, at front and center, if you know, the total contradiction of terms, but to place the air war front and center as the thing that needs to be in your head when you're thinking about these developments in the end of the war, I think is also it's the thing that often gets lost when you get into more detailed histories. Yeah. No. 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 It, you're you're right there. That the the air war, even in the sections that I'm explicitly about the the air war, it's always a character, mm-hmm. and I think that that's useful. But uh, all the same, I I don't think that that he raises a whole lot of new questions. Not many breadcrumbs to follow up on, yeah. Yeah, uh, but all the same, it, it's it's a, a good survey of a few months in a specific place. Mm-hmm. the The terrible thing about being the first historian to write about or synthesize the book on a subject is that every historian comes along after who 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 you who has basically just accepted what you were still trying to establish as fact comes along and goes, like, <laughs> "Well, you didn't do much there," like so you know. He he's in that position to an extent, but yeah, you know. Uh, but that's all right. That's yeah. I guess that's a, that's a position that that we should all embrace and want to be in. At some point absolutely. <laughs> you've everybody so thinks you do. <laughs> people just yeah. forget what you've done. Yeah. Uh huh. And on that note, we draw this episode of the Third Reich History Podcast to a close. We'd like to thank you for joining us, and hope to see you next time. Until then.